Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, beloved, we were hoping for Reverend Jim Hookstra to be here tonight, but he's ill and they had to make a call to the bullpen. So here I am. We love our brother, we hope he's well soon, and uh, tonight then we will be turning to Romans 8. We'll look at verses 28 through 30. It is a joy to be with you all. It is a wonderful privilege, as Pastor Seifert said, to gather as churches to worship the Lord. And we now hear the word of God tonight together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also sanctified. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. I wonder how many of you were here for the Bold North Conference last year. If you were, you met our dear brother, Johnny Gibson. Some of you maybe have read some of his books, maybe his children's book, anybody? How would you go about explaining to a three-year-old that the baby sister that he's excitedly looking forward to meeting won't be coming home? That at 39 weeks, she's died in her mother's womb. That might be something you faced, might be something very similar to what you're going through. It's a heartbreaking question to consider, but it's one that Johnny Gibson faced when his daughter, Leela, was stillborn in 2016. When his son Ben asked why daddy, he said, I don't know why, but the moon is always round. He was referring to a catechism that he had written for his son a few months before. He said, Ben, what is the shape of the moon tonight? The moon is a crescent moon, you kids know, or it's a half moon or sometimes a full moon. What shape is the moon always, he asked. The moon is always round. What does that mean? It means God is always good. Little did his father know how important that would become in their life as a family. It became their way of discussing what happened to Leela. His son has a picture of the moon above his bed, he says, with these words, the moon is always round. If you can read that book without crying, I would be surprised. It, in God's providence, it's a beautiful gift to the church for all ages. The moon is always round, even when you can't see all of it. And God is always good, even on days when you can't see it. That's what we learn here in this passage in Romans 8. A glorious passage God's loving purposes from eternity 
to eternity. From no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to no separation from his love for us. Salvation, beloved, belongs to the Lord from the first to the last and all of those sufferings and trials in between. We want to look first at the goodness of God's purpose. One of the dear brothers in our church who died just this last year has Romans 8:28 on his tombstone. And I remember many conversations with this brother about many different things. And one thing he would often bring out, maybe you've heard this, is how often misunderstood this verse can be. Well, it's a comprehensive statement. As one writer says, it says our bad things will turn out for good. The good things that we have cannot be lost. And the best things are yet to come. That's what it's saying. What is it not saying? Well, it's not fatalism. It's not cold rationalism. It's not determinism. It's not que sera, sera. It's not everything will be all right in the end. It's not the things our culture says. Every cloud has a silver lining. It's not that everything works out good for everyone, no matter what, all the time. For those who do not love God, things will not work out for good. Paul is not saying that all things are good in your life, Christian. Sin is not good. It's evil. The sins that have been done to you or you've experienced, some of you perhaps have been horribly abused and sinned against, those things are not good. They are evil. Suffering in itself is painful. In God's providence, some Christians suffer far more than others. Paul's not saying if you become a Christian, then all of these sufferings will go away. Sometimes your life is filled with grief upon grief, sorrow upon sorrow, mountains of it, waves of it crashing like the psalmist says. Maybe sometimes your tears have been your food day and night as you cry out, Lord, how long? This verse is not saying, well, I didn't get into this school, so that must mean God has a better school for me. It's not saying I didn't marry this person, so it must mean there'll be a better person to marry. Well, maybe, but maybe not in the sovereign, mysterious providence of God. It's not saying that things on their own work together for good. There's no such thing as karma or the force or Star Wars kids. There is no Mandalorian out there. Might be a fun show. This verse has been used sometimes by Christians in very wrong ways, in some ways maybe like Job's friends. Maybe you've had that experience where you went through perhaps the death of a loved one and someone brought you Romans 8, 28 and said, yes, your fiancé died, but remember, all things work together for good. No, that is not the right thing to say at that time. That excuses someone from listening and caring. It just kind of dumps it on them, right? We don't read this verse individualistically and say, well, I had a bad week today, but that means by the end of the month, things will work out much better. That's not what it's saying. And we know, Paul says, he's confident, he's assured, he's absolutely certain. Those who are called according to God's purpose... God uses every event for the express good of his people. These things work together. Life is not random. 
What's he speaking of here, beloved? The providence of God. The catechisms speak of this, Heidelberg 27. What is the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere present power of God. Whereby, with his hand, he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. He governs them so that leaf and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And we know. He's connecting what precedes these verses, the sufferings of this present evil age that he says are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. If things are going well in your life circumstantially right now, praise God. But if things are not, if you're going through massive heartache, God is still at work. Even a difficult time that you're facing helps us to learn to trust God more. I've been meditating on Psalm 28. Michael prayed verses that were similar to that. The Lord is your refuge and strength. He is your help. He is the one in whom my heart trusts. I will not be afraid. The Lord will help me. I will bless the Lord. John Newton grew up as a, as a child of Christian parents. You probably know that. His father died when he was young. His mother catechized him, kids, much like Mom and Dad are teaching you the catechism. He went to sea. He became the worst of the immoral sailors of the sea. His testimony, though, was, I could never escape what I was taught as a young child. The truth of the gospel that his mom taught him. The Spirit of God would not let him go. God brought him to faith in Christ, as you know, through much turmoil, much sin. And Newton said, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. Much of our despondency is not the bad things that happen to us. It is, in my life, I know this is the case, that I am surprised that these bad things are happening. I say, well, if I love God, I should have more good circumstances. But that's not the promise here. Modern people say if something goes wrong, what will they do? They sue someone. Because they think things ought to go right. But we live in a fallen world. Joseph in the book of Genesis reminds us of this very fact. He's 17 years old. He's sold to the Ishmaelites. Some Midianite traders come by and they sell him to a military man named Potiphar. He's falsely accused of rape. He's in prison for years. By the time he's released from prison, he's 30 years old. And at the end of his life, through all of these things, Joseph says, remember Genesis 50? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What his brothers did was evil, but God, in his ultimate purpose, preserved his life, kept the promise made to Adam and Eve and Abraham, a promise that led to the coming of Jesus. God is not culpable for evil. The Westminster speaks in chapter 3 of the first cause of all things is God. The second cause is the brothers here who sinned and who are responsible for it. 
a divine intention. God meant it for good, a human intention for evil. But God overrules it. And we read this in particular, not just in light of Joseph, but in light of the cross. Acts 2, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most evil thing that ever happened. The innocent, pure son of God, the God-man, dies for us under the sovereign providence of God. 100% the action of evil men. 100% God's plan happening through those men. Working together for the saving purpose of his people. What is the good here ultimately? It is that God will take the bad things and work them for good in their totality. Look at the four in verse 29. Four tells us that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the first good that is being described here. To be made like Jesus. Here's how this applies. Think of the catechism again. What does it benefit you to know that God created all things and still upholds them by his providence? That we might be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. As we grow in family likeness, Ferguson says, we learn by the Spirit to mimic our Heavenly Father in patience. God is so patient with us. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Ferguson says this, patience in the Christian often develops through being in situations likely to create impatience in us. You know that, right? And so long as our patience is never tested, he says, it never grows. But the Spirit works in us, transforming us gently, slowly, but surely, in situations in which we are often impatient, working in us to be more like Jesus. We know, Paul says, he's confident. Upon what does this assurance rest? Not only the goodness of God's purpose, but secondly, the outworking of this purpose. Paul goes on. This is like Mount Everest, verses 29 and 30. One peak after another. It's like the Himalayas. He is telling us from eternity past to eternity future what the Lord does to secure our salvation. The golden chain, it's, it's often called. He says, those whom he foreknew. Verse 29. This is not saying that God looked down the corridor of time and saw what someone would do or what someone would choose or what someone would be like and chose them on the basis of that. This is talking about people not about decisions someone makes. Those he, whom he foreknew are those whom he foreloved. When Adam came together with Eve, 
as one person says. He didn't say to Eve, well, I, I see on the dating app that you are this tall and you're from this place and you have these interests and by knowing these facts about you, she's pregnant. Of course not. Adam knew her personally and intimately and loved her and she conceived and bore a child. God's knowledge of you, dear Christian, is personal and loving, not just informational. He set his love and affection on you before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah 31.3, Voss comments on this verse. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He says this, the reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began. This truth should breathe unfailing assurance into the life of every one of God's people. Because our lives are often up and down. Like Peter, we looked at that this morning at the church. One minute he confesses Jesus is the Christ, the next minute get behind me Satan. He's up and he's down like a roller coaster. He's not flying at 35,000 feet at a wonderful cruising altitude with no turbulence. There is no life like that. There are ups and there are downs. Our affections are up and down. We often have disordered feelings and our indwelling sin and dark disappointments and circumstances that we struggle with. God's love for you is the bedrock of contented, assured, godly living. It's a pillow on which you can rest your head. It's an anchor that keeps you firmly attached to the Lord. He foreknew you. His love for you, Christian, did not begin when you believed. His love for you did not begin when Jesus died on the cross for you. His love for you is from before the foundation of the world. Jesus died on the cross because the Father loves you. If you're a Christian today, it's because God has done something in eternity past. This foreknowledge is the basis of election. For those whom he foreknew, it says he predestined. So this Mount Everest continues. These mountain peaks. Pre means before. Destiny. The work of salvation, beloved, doesn't begin in us. If it did, there'd be no hope. It begins in God. It continues in God. It ends in God. Before you were born, God issued a decree, a plan, and a purpose. Salvation is not our decision. We're born dead in sin. If it was up to us to decide, we would never decide to choose the Lord, would we? This would undermine grace alone. It would make faith a work that we did. It's all the work of God. And it's in Christ. When we think about those whom he predestined, we must never think of this apart from Christ. Christ is the mirror of our election. In him, Ephesians 1, you were chosen. In him, you were loved. Election is an act of sovereignty, grace, and love. When we give in to this, when we give up on ourselves, we finally say salvation is entirely of the Lord. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, 
he called. When Paul speaks here of calling, he's telling us in this third mountain that there's an outward call that comes. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then, by the grace of God, an inward, effectual call by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Lazarus, children? He's dead. He's been dead for days. He stinks. Lazarus is a picture of every human in our natural state, bound in grave clothes. If you and I called to someone like that, come out, we love you, we miss you, would anything happen? No. Lazarus does not have the ability to come back from the dead. The call is given, but he cannot come. But if Jesus stands before that tomb, and he does, and if Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth, and he does, and he specifies Lazarus, because if he didn't, all of those in the graves would come out by the power of his word, then it's effectual. It's powerful. God brings about what he demands. He creates what he commands. The dead man comes forth. And if you are a Christian tonight, it's because by the sovereign grace of God, you have heard the call of God and responded in faith, trusting the Lord and repentance. Some of you may never know a day when you didn't believe. God can call someone from the womb of their mother. Think of John the Baptist. Others of you here might think, yeah, it's a long period where I was struggling. I didn't want to be saved. I hated God or I was apathetic. But now I admit I'm a sinner. God have mercy on me. I was wrong. I was into myself. God, I thank you that you've loved me. I thank you for John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. In that verse, you see what Romans 8 is saying. Both predestined and the free offer of the gospel. Who has the right to believe, someone says? Who has the right to come to Christ? We are all entitled to come to Christ and take him as Savior. Every sinner, the foulest, the vilest, the most vicious, have the right to come. We call upon all to believe, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We preach the gospel to the world. And God, by the Spirit, will illuminate those who believe, those he chose before the foundation of the world. The fourth mountain, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified. Do you see how this is? building. It's all the work of God. Here we have what Luther called, in many ways, the foundation upon which the church stands or falls. Justification is the declaration by God, legally, forensically. God, the judge, says that because Christ was made sin for us, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, his active obedience, his passive obedience, as the ground of my justification, God pronounces just and righteous on the sinner, and it cannot be undone. In justification, we rest and receive the finished work of Christ, receiving his righteousness. 
Paul says, so certain is this salvation that a future promise is guaranteed. He not only justified, but he glorified those same ones. It's the same set. There are no dropouts between those whom he foreknew and those whom he glorified. Incredible assurance for you, dear Christian, tonight. It's grounded in God's call. God's decree renders those things certain, even though they have not yet occurred in time. God is working all things for good for those who love him. That should comfort us in the midst of present suffering because we're not yet in glory. Our lives are patterned after the life of our Savior, suffering now, glory in the age to come. Like Luther, we have a theology of the cross. God is guiding his eternal plan for our glory. That means he must also be guiding all of our circumstances for our good. And here is the second meaning of verse 28. God works all things together for good. What does that mean? It means we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And it also means, as Thomas says, God will bring you all the way home. The good in the end is this, glorification. God's sovereign providence in your lives involves absolutely everything. Dear Christian, God didn't start loving you. He didn't begin to choose you. He has always loved you. You have always been his in his sovereign purposes. May we respond with praise and glory to the one true triune God who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever. The moon is always round, kids. God is always good. He loves you. He is making you more like Christ, and he will bring you one day to himself. We walk now by faith, then we will see by sight. The joy and the glory that awaits, no eye has seen and no ear has heard. What a wonderful, glorious God we serve. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.